Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. I want to quickly reflect on the fact that we've now hit 100 episodes of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. When Ben Stockdale and the rest of the NCSEA team took on this endeavor four years ago, we could not have imagined what this podcast has turned into today with a community of listeners from all across the country. A whole host of incredible guests from Governor Roy Cooper to now EPA Administrator Michael Regan, NBA All-Star David West, NASCAR driver Leilani Munter, and so, so many more. We truly view this podcast as the embodiment and representation of the incredibly robust and talented professional network of clean energy champions here in North Carolina and the Southeast. We are so uniquely positioned being in the purplest of purple states in the Southeast while being a national clean energy leader. So much of that success is truly a testament to many of the guests we've had on the podcast and many of you who we have yet to bring on the podcast. I feel truly humbled to have the privilege to be able to lead this endeavor, but want to reflect on the fact that a podcast of this magnitude is the result of lots of incredible work by our entire team at NCSEA and by our partners who are consistently bringing us ideas to help fuel the conversations that many of you keep coming back for. I hope that you'll continue to join us on this journey as we go into 2024 and that you'll share the podcast with others in your network who may not already be tuning in. And with that, I thank you all for all of your support over these four years. On today's episode though, I'm incredibly excited to bring you a conversation with three remarkable leaders who each played a significant role in expanding inclusive utility investments in the state of North Carolina and across the country and are going to share with us today how North Carolina is set to once again step into a leadership role in delivering an innovative clean energy program for customers across the state. But before that conversation, a few short updates. Coming up on January 31st, NCSEA is hosting our annual continuing legal education event, Clean Energy in North Carolina. For attorneys listening in, this is a great opportunity to earn your required CLE hours and learn about the latest policy and regulatory happenings in North Carolina. For all others, this is a great way to stay on top of the latest in the clean energy ecosystem in the state, while also having a chance to hear from sitting utility commissioners on the ever-popular View from the Bench panel. To find out more information about the event and to register, visit energync.org and check out our events page. Do you enjoy the content of this podcast? Do you find value in the conversations we bring you to help in your own energy career? The Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is brought to you in part by listener support, and we need your help to continue bringing content like this to your preferred podcast platform every other week. As we wrap up the end of 2024, NCSEA is conducting our annual giving campaign, which helps to ensure we can continue to advocate on behalf of affordable, reliable, clean energy solutions at the North Carolina General Assembly, North Carolina Utilities Commission, and other decision-making venues setting the path forward for our energy future in the state. Consider a tax-deductible gift today to NCSEA by visiting the homepage of our website or the link listed in the show notes. Thanks again for your support. And now, on to the show. 
We're going to keep introductions fairly short today, as we have a lot of great conversations to get to. So with that, I'm excited to welcome on three esteemed guests who have long been leaders in advancing the conversations around inclusive utility investment in the Southeast and across the country, and have pioneered successful, innovative programs right here in our own backyard in North Carolina that have gone on to shape what has become a transformational decision by the North Carolina Utilities Commission to approve a statewide tariffed on-bill program. I'm excited to welcome on our guests. Clean energy. Our first guest today on the podcast is Dr. Holmes Hummel, founder and co-executive director with Clean Energy Works, an organization founded to accelerate investments in the clean energy economy on inclusive terms that are fiscally sustainable and financially scalable. Prior to Clean Energy Works, Dr. Hummel served as the senior policy advisor in the DOE's Office of Policy and International Affairs. All in all, Dr. Hummel has been a key leader in advancing the conversations around inclusive utility investments across the country, helping to convene incredible leaders like we'll hear from today on the podcast. Holmes, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to be included. Thank you. Our next guest on the podcast is Claire Williamson, energy policy advocate for the North Carolina Justice Center, where she advocates for safe and affordable energy policies for low-income North Carolinians. Prior to the Justice Center, she worked on implementing energy efficiency and renewable energy programs for residents of the District of Columbia. And Claire has been a leading voice in advancing opportunities for low and moderate income communities across North Carolina via clean energy solutions, the likes of which we'll talk about today. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. It's great to be here. And our next guest is Marshall Cherry, president and CEO of Roanoke Cooperative. Marshall has served as Roanoke's president and CEO since 2021, but before that, he was COO for nearly eight years. In total, he has over 30 years of service with the cooperative and has long been a proponent of providing cutting-edge, innovative solutions for their member owners in Northeastern North Carolina. Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Matt, and glad to be a part of this conversation today. All right, so we're going to jump right on into questions specifically to the the topic of focus on our podcast today. Given all of the momentum we've seen around the topic of uh, inclusive utility investment, we're going to do a deep dive into some of the, the background of all of the great work that's been done by many of the folks that are on the call here today and many that aren't on the call that we'll hear about from our, our speakers. So uh, first, I want to direct our first question to Holmes. So with our focus today on inclusive utility investment, can you help set the foundation as to why this work is important and what is the level of need across the country and the Southeast when it comes to households facing a high energy burden and what pathways have previously been taken to try to address these needs before models like pay as you save and inclusive utility investment that we'll be talking about here. Matt, thank you. That was a three-part opener that uh, I'll endeavor to undertake perhaps in reverse order by telling you a little bit more and your listeners about my own personal experience. You see, I grew up in North Carolina. I'm deeply devoted to my home state, but I had moved to Washington, D.C. 10 years ago, well, now, gosh, 14, for the first term of the Obama administration, which was also a historic time when the the United States was investing a record amount in clean energy upgrades as a part of an economic recovery plan. We called it the Recovery Act. And during that time, we saw a surge of investments in energy upgrades where they were needed most, including low-income households. 
But when the money stopped, so did the music, and that was incredibly distressing. I served as the senior policy advisor in the Department of Energy's Office of Policy at that time, and we asked the national labs to search the nation looking for fiscally sustainable solutions that would be scalable so that the amount of investment we had already stimulated could be sustained and increased. What we found was that the predominant narrative was based on loans, based on consumers agreeing to borrow money and go into debt in order to acquire the clean energy upgrades that were in the national interest. But we were asking implicitly for people who are facing economic insecurities that required them to prioritize other purposes for spending or saving, to change their decision matrix to agree that a heat pump or insulation was more important than education, retirement savings, or medical debt. It just wasn't true for enough people in enough places. And as a result, the people who are trying to market energy loans found that there are relatively few takers. And that's what brings us to your question about how utilities stepped into this story. You see, where the financial services sector has adopted a set of practices that manifestly produce money deserts, financial services sectors can serve some people, but not everyone, based on the rules and regulations that determine who they are allowed to sign a contract for money with. Well, utilities, they serve everybody. Utilities are in a different part of the economy that's overseen by a different set of regulators and regulatory constructs, including elected boards of electric cooperatives or municipal utilities, as well as the state-appointed utility commissioners that we're familiar with in North Carolina. And here's where I'll rest my opening remarks here, because what we found was that there were utilities that had experience making site-specific investments in money-saving upgrades for which their utility regulators had already approved that it was just, reasonable, and fair for the utility then, therefore, to recover its costs from those sites. And this site-specific investment and site-specific cost recovery had qualities of inclusion that gave us a sense that this could be a pathway for advancing equity in the clean energy economy, and that's how it came to be known as inclusive utility investment. And, you know, Claire, you and, and your shop have been intimately involved in the conversation around inclusive utility investment for a number of years here in the Southeast, even beyond just the borders of North Carolina. So I'll, I'll ask you a two-part question here. You know, can you talk a little bit more about some of the energy challenges our communities across the Southeast have been and are facing, and then the role that the North Carolina Justice Center has taken in helping to convene utilities across the Southeast to continue to advance the conversations around inclusive utility investment programs that we are now seeing come to fruition, like Duke's statewide uh, tariffed on bill program that we'll talk about in more detail here in a little bit. Sure. Um, so just so folks who may not know, I'm Claire I'm with the North Carolina Justice Center, and we are an organization that advocates for, on behalf of low-income North Carolinians, and we're out to eliminate poverty in the state, which is a big task. And so one of the things is like energy is essential. Just imagine for a minute 
spending a day, like going to your breaker box, shutting off your electricity, your power to your house. And just like imagine spending a day like that. So many levels of inconvenience and burden, your access to food, to be able to preserve your food and your medicine, to have hot showers, to care for yourself, to access internet and um, to, for your schools, for your jobs, it's essential. And people treat it essentially. Your, your rent and your light bill are two of the like bills that people really want to pay. And when they can't pay, it's an indication that they are in financial distress. And the bills can be, as the seasons change, if your home is not well insulated or you've got old equipment or you've just got, you're using a lot of power, you can have really high bills, $200, dollars $400 that you get hit with. And if you're not able to pay it, then you can get disconnected and your life gets disrupted. That's this challenge we're looking to address and to solve, that people have access to reliable energy so that they can be in a safe and clean home and go and do the things that matter to them and their communities. So I'll just step back a little bit to January of 2021. Jen Weiss, who was at the Nicholas Institute, reached out to us as well as the App Appalachian Voices and said, I have an idea to actually create a set of recommendations around energy and security across the Southeast. And we're going to bring together all these different stakeholders from all over the, the region. And I, I thought she was insane. I really did because I was like, that's a, that's a, this is a huge issue we're talking about. It's addressing housing. It's addressing just the, the social acceptance of poverty. It's addressing financing and communications and utilities, like all these different areas. But Jen had a vision and a process and we set up working groups. And I was on the working group that brought together folks to look at like, what is the utilities role and what could utilities be doing in the utility commissions to address energy and security? And there was many working groups, many processes, and we came to, to with about like, I think it was six recommendations. Some of them are were around, you know, payment assistance programs and making sure improving energy efficiency programs. And one of them was this inclusive utility investment. So one was the inclusive utility investment recommendation. And it's because we not only need programs that are available to the very lowest income folks at no cost, but there is a chunk of middle income people who can't access the rebates and the other programs, but need to be able to make updates. So there are programs that are available at no cost to the energy customer and the Justice Center, we wanna keep expanding and keep those programs in place. And we have with Duke Energy, it's been, we've made some great progress. And tariff on bill or the inclusive utility investment is an, it's an, another essential tool to bridge the gap for people accessing energy efficient upgrades. Well, I commend Claire, you and your team for all of the great work that you all have been doing here in North Carolina and the Southeast to continue to advance the conversation around inclusive utility investment. And and I think you you highlighted the the real need for these programs very succinctly at the beginning of your remarks. And this this kind of goes back to 
some really jarring statistics that I had come across um, in, in filings that were made at the North Carolina Utilities Commission related to, and Holmes, I hope I don't steal some of your thunder here, but related to utility arrearages in North Carolina. And I think the, the need was really projected into the spotlight not long after the, the COVID pandemic kicked off, in which we saw that nearly 12% of all customer accounts in North Carolina fell past due, which showed how on the edge so many households are when it comes to making financial decisions between paying their utility bills and putting food on the table and just showing the, the level of need for these new innovative utility investment programs. So with that being said, maybe we'll take a, a little bit of a step back, Holmes, and and I would like to just ask, you know, where did the concept of inclusive utility investment come from? Can you share a little bit more about its trajectory into implementation via utilities across the country? Sure. You know, Matt, when I was working at the Department of Energy as the senior policy advisor in the policy office, there was an urgent need to seek financial solutions that could be inclusive so that more people could participate in a clean energy economy that requires everybody to be able to access money-saving upgrades or else the transition will forever be incomplete and continue to jeopardize people who are already bearing a disproportionate burden. What we know from the history of inclusive utility investments is that thought leaders in Vermont cooperating with a utility commissioner in New Hampshire introduced the first example of it with the system called pay as you save. And it was later adopted by an energy democracy in Kansas where Michael Volker was a senior executive. And he leveraged state energy funds to introduce inclusive utility investment through a pay-as-you-save program called HouseSmart, and later shared it with electric cooperatives through a principle called cooperation among cooperatives. And in Kentucky, half a dozen electric cooperatives then adopted that same inclusive financial solution for their members when they were in conversation through a collaborative with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. That community-based organization had a partnership with Mountain Association, a community development finance institution, much like the ones who are members of the association called Inclusive today. Well, once those electric cooperatives in an area that was widely recognized for persistence of poverty, this is a federal status of recognition spanning three census periods or 30 years of high poverty rates. Once they had shown high uptake rates and good results, increasing confidence in the field to try the same solution spread to Roanoke Electric. And that's why it's an honor for me to be on this podcast with the CEO of Roanoke Electric, Marshall Chair. He might have the rest of this story from Roanoke's perspective, but I want to underscore the significance of the leadership in North Carolina. If it hadn't been for leaders in down east North Carolina who themselves were looking for solutions to a national problem and were willing to move ahead without waiting for other people to pave the way, we would not have learned nearly as much as the field has learned since then and many others have followed. 
So I think the rest of the story belongs to Marshall. And with that, we are really excited to have a utility who has fully embraced the opportunity around inclusive utility investment on the podcast today. So Marshall, I am really curious, what compelled Rona Cooperative to initially offer an innovative program like Upgrade to Save? And did you have any initial hesitations around offering a program of this nature? Yes, and thank you. And so honored again to be on uh, with my colleagues here. Matt, overall, the, the genesis of Rona Cooperative's innovative program that we call Upgrade to Save was really primarily driven by the need for greater inclusivity. And we've heard that word quite a few times already. And inclusivity in energy efficiency financing. And so this motivation for us really stemmed from a desire to provide opportunities to a broader spectrum of individuals who might not have had access to traditional funding avenues for energy saving initiatives. And so initially, yes, there were understandably reservations about launching a program of this nature as we have gone through many iterations of of energy efficiency financing programs with limited success for many years. And one concern was, you know, some capacities to do things like conduct energy audits as well as and doing it efficiently in addition to managing the whole uh, process flow to ultimately lead to an investment for the individual. And another piece there was ensuring the validity of generated savings or deemed savings, if you will. That was a crucial factor because we want to ensure that individuals were experiencing savings uh, day one uh, from the actual the invest the investment that would have been made. And so for us, the need really, however, the need to address many recurring issues that we have faced by individuals grappling with high energy usage was a big driver for us, especially after the severe winter seasons, as we typically have been a winter peaking system for many years. And so that just spurred us to diversify our offerings beyond the usual, what we call loan programs that we formerly had introduced over the years to more to more of an inclusive utility investment that we could recover through the dwelling. And so the nature of the inclusive utility investment program really significantly broadens the scope of, of who we could benefit from energy efficiency financing. And so by providing a solution such as this, catered to those who might have struggled to secure funding through co- conventional means. And Upgrade to Save has certainly been able to close those types of gaps to get us around some of the cycles that we had seen for so many years, again, particularly in the wintertime, calling us for high bill, uh, high bill complaints. We're going out giving advice on what needs to be done. And the conversation would stop right there because there was no capacity to continue to move forward. So Upgrade to Save gives us uh, this additional solution within our toolkit uh, to address some of those. And so we're very thankful to have this. And certainly the program itself has seen quite a bit of success and as well as satisfaction among our member owners. And similar to Claire's remarks earlier, you know, it takes a village to implement a lot of these really successful programs. Uh, and I know that Roanoke's Upgrade to Save program was a collaborative effort as well. Can you talk a little bit more about the community of organizations involved in successfully helping to implement Upgrade to Save? Absolutely. Yes, um, it does take a village. And so this we owe a great deal of success to a collaborative effort of, of many organizations uh, within our family of communities. And, and these partnerships, such as those with, as you if I already heard from Dr. Holmes Hummel, Clean Energy Works, of course, organizations uh, such as Imperial Solutions, 
the USDA who provided this credit facility uh, to the electric cooperatives to be able to pass through these types of investments. The North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, your organization, Matt, very instrumental in helping us stand up and undergird the program. And then the work we've been doing with Advanced Energy, all were very instrumental in effectively implementing Upgrade to Save. But I would also like to say, as Holmes mentioned earlier, the pay-as-you-save model. We, we did a lot of work early on with an organization known as the Energy Efficiency Institute based out of Vermont, who put together some intellectual property to help us stand up the comfort that we needed to ensure that individuals would be cash flow positive day one after making the investments. And so that type of work to be able to administer was very crucial to our success and given that extra layer, a leg of support to help us build a base to ensure that we had a program that could be sustainable, that could stand on its own. And we've actually seen the results of that. So as we've seen more and more utilities take on inclusive utility investment programs, there still are a lot of others that have not yet taken this pathway to offering these types of programs for either their member owners or their customers. So for other utilities who either haven't heard about these types of programs or maybe on the fence about offering a similar program, what would you tell them based on your experience at Roanoke Cooperative? Yes. And for us, you know, for utilities in general contemplating the implementation of inclusive utility programs, I, I would just really emphasize several key points. And this is based on our experience with Upgrade to Save. First, the program can, is really self-sustaining and it offers a viable avenue for recovering investments. Our initiative has demonstrated its, its ability to be financially self-supporting, whereas there's no subsidization from other member owners to stand up the program, thereby mitigating those concerns about the sustainability of the program's funding. Um, moreover, the program's impact on our member owners has been very substantial. Uh, notably, many of our subscribers, previously high contributors to our capacity calls, have found this program particularly beneficial. And by helping them reduce their energy usage and subsequently their overall costs, it also offers an added layer of benefit to the utility because we're able to partner during peak periods to help us be more efficient in how we purchase wholesale power. So indirectly aiding in cost management back to the utility. Uh, importantly, the satisfaction levels, which we are an electric cooperative, the ethos that we live by is service, right? And so the, the satisfaction levels among our program subscribers surpasses those of our general population of member owners. And this higher satisfaction is a testament to the program's effectiveness and the tangible savings it brings to our community members. I'd like to also add anecdotally, or really kind of on the edges here, that leveraging local contractors you know, within the program has also provided a dual advantage. Not only does it stimulate the local economy, but it also fosters a sense of community involvement and support. And so to date, and from a financial standpoint, you know, the program's impact on subscribers has really been substantial. Whereas they're seeing significant savings, we're really standing up the program. Individuals are paying. We're not seeing a lot of delinquency as a result of, of this type of program. And satisfaction certainly is much higher among these subscribers. I've just, I've, I've got to commend you and your team, Marshall. You know, I think you take such a holistic approach to how you work with your member owners. And it's really about quality of life for member owners in your part of the state and thinking about 
not just the the bills that they're paying every month and the bottom line on the utility bills, but really their quality of life in terms of all of the different services that you're offering. The ability to reinvest in new jobs via contractors in the local community, offering broadband internet service for those who maybe have never had access to internet services before, having a community center for people to engage with each other. I mean, the list goes on and on and taking this really holistic approach to the member owners' lives within your community is incredible. And I think given the success that you've seen with programs like Upgrade to Save, it has garnered some momentum for these types of programs with other utilities and other collaboratives here within the region, including a collaborative that, Claire, you've, you've sat on for some time, a collaborative as part of the ongoing tariffed on-bill working group within Duke Energy's EEDSM collaborative. So can you talk, Claire, a little bit more about this stakeholder group, who's in it, and what policy and regulatory recommendations have come about out of this group, given some of the success that we've seen from programs like Upgrade to Save? Sure. What a what a hard pivot from the inspiring conversations of Marshall to talk about the DSMEE Duke Energy Collaborative. Woo! Um, yes, I have been participating on it for about three and a half years, and it is a, a group that meets every two months, and it's a wide range of stakeholders from low-income advocates like myself to environmental groups, regulators listen in, large commercial. We cover a lot of different topics. The only real rule is no lawyers allowed because it's, it's intended to be like a sharing space. And I will say there's been many productive conversations that have happened. I think it's a great venue for staying up to date on all the different programs that you get the measurement and evaluation reports, get updates on programs. We get to have discussions about what the federal funds coming in. And the collaborative, I will say the, the, the substantial policy decisions have come out of like rate case settlements. That's where the tariff, the tariff on bill pilot requirement came from a settlement in the 2021 DEC and DEP rate cases. And there were other provisions in there that also said to work with stakeholders on more than one low-income pilot. And that led to the creation of a called the Low-Income High Energy Use Pilot Program. It's a fully ratepayer-funded program to serve 1,000 customers. And it targets households that have high energy use that over 17,000 annual kilowatt hours with the idea that Duke Energy itself, like ratepayers, could target and go after some of these high energy users and have more savings. And that would be able to be a fully funded program. And part of the elements is to connect it with um, localities and the home repair dollars as well. So there has been productive conversations, but I'd say the collaborative is no substitution for the policy making decisions of the commission and even of our legislature, it really is, is a much more of a information sharing and relationship building type of venue. But I will say, I wanna acknowledge, you know, the Duke and the process around the working group, the tariff on bill working group had been in place for over five years and where conversations kept being brought up and there were challenges, Duke worked through some of them and then 
once we got that kind of go ahead from the commission to work on developing a pilot program, it was developed in, in less than a year in a really kind of collaborative process. So let's, let's talk about the, the commission a little bit more and specifically the, the order that was issued by the, the commission at the end of, of August authorizing a statewide tariff on-bill program as a result of a lot of great conversations that transpired over the past couple of years through the working group, through relationships that your organization and many others really came to the table in earnest trying to create a program to emanate a lot of the success that's been seen at Roanoke Cooperative, but on the state level with our largest utility in North Carolina. So can you talk a little bit more about what this program is and the significance of this tariff on bill program that was authorized by the Commission for North Carolina? Well, with credit to the members of the tariff on bill working group and also, the representatives to the rate case settlement that led to this order, that would be at the Southeast Environmental Law Center. The tariff resulted in some firsts. One is that Duke proposed to the state that it be able to have a level playing field for investing in money-saving upgrades at its customer sites compared to anything else they could invest in. And of course, in the North Carolina headlines, you would know that North Carolina is wrestling with proposals from the utility to continue to build out fossil fuel assets, including gas power plants. And so the idea that the utility could put on a level playing field, investing in upgrades at customer sites that would make those new fossil plants mission unnecessary was really a big step forward. Environmental Defense Fund had also been a part of the constellation of groups calling for inclusive utility investment in North Carolina, and they had repeatedly filed with the commission data and evidence sourced from utilities that had experience in other parts of the country which ultimately gave confidence to the utility that it did not need to limit who in the state could be offered this opportunity. Would it just be one corner of the state or would it be everybody that they serve in the state? And ultimately they found that there wasn't a justification for limiting access. They also found that there wasn't a justification for limiting demography. In other words, running background checks on customers to determine who could and who couldn't participate, they found no basis for that. And so the Duke proposal was in fact expansively inclusive. And then they also said, well, if you give us a level playing field and everyone can play, we don't see a reason to terminate this program within a certain number of months which we had seen other commissions and utilities do. And so Duke proposed a program that was full scale and permanent from the start, without a sunset, 36 months. No pilot program with a two year evaluation program as if they were wondering whether their utility would be competent enough to offer the same type of solution that had already been demonstrated by Roanoke and now a dozen others. These are some of the frontiers that we saw the Utility Commission in North Carolina address. 
that it is okay for a utility to offer a full-scale, permanent, for everyone, money-saving upgrade program with a level playing field for earnings and anything else the utility could invest in. Now, the utility also did meet Claire's description earlier of introducing some pilot programs. And one of them, importantly, was with multifamily. Multifamily buildings are renters' homes owned by landlords that often have diverse interests or divergent interests from their renters. And that's a major barrier in addition to cost. It's called the split incentive. And so Duke proposed to the Utility Commission that it would try to introduce inclusive utility investments specifically for multifamily buildings and even those that are new, new under construction multifamily buildings, moving them from minimum code to more efficient from the outset. And I think that the field stands to learn a lot from that learning opportunity. With that, I think we should turn to the discussion that Claire and, and Marshall can inform us about, as I know you're planning in this podcast to help us imagine what's next on the horizon. Yeah. And, and thinking about what's next specific to this program really quickly are there limitations to the program that was authorized by the North Carolina Utilities Commission in terms of the services and technologies that are covered under Tariff Don Bill? Or is there a future in which technologies like solar and storage could be financed under this program? The Justice Center's position is that as long as there are, you know, customer protections and a robust estimated bill savings. Tariffed on bill could be a tool that's applied to both energy efficiency upgrades as well as the solar or storage. That is not the position that Duke and the commission took in this most recent program ruling. And they have limited the, the application of a tariffed on bill mechanism to only a list of approved energy efficiency measures. So I think they left the door open to re-examining this down the line. So I think that's part of the, the next set of work to, to come to see is what other opportunity, where else can this tool be used? And, and Claire, to, to kind of follow up on that, you know, when we're talking about programs like this, they, they are not necessarily no cost programs, but they are a great avenue to help low income customers finance energy efficiency measures for their home. I know an important area that you all have been thinking about at the Justice Center is addressing the areas of most need and communities that are experiencing the most poverty through things like no cost programs. So what are the types of of energy efficiency or clean energy programs we need to be considering in North Carolina in order to address some of those biggest needs here in the state. Yeah, like, I mean, this could, this could get expansive quickly, but I'll try to stay limited. And I, and I think the first thing I want to talk about before we get into the energy efficiency programs themselves is the need for investment in housing. We need to address the fact that there was discriminatory housing and banking practices that kept Black, Latino, communities of color from accessing the capital to, to upgrade their houses. There's like a whole, the house itself, the actual physical structure of the house is like an embodiment of a lot of the systemic oppression and racism that is seeped in our country. 
And to assume that we can simply come in with a like a nice little engineered program and change out the equipment and that's going to address and meet the needs, it actually overlooks the houses, the, the places that need it the most. Because somewhere in between like 40 to 60% of homes that apply for a lot of these quote unquote, like low income programs get deferred. And they get deferred because they have structural elements that need upgrade. Like you're not gonna put in wall insulation when you have a leaky roof or a hole in the floor. That just, it doesn't make sense. And you've got to spend the money up front to repair the home, to then do the weatherization process, to then upgrade their equipment. And it's it's a it's a tough thing to have to re reckon with that there isn't just like an easy solution to addressing poverty and racism if we want to actually create a society where people can live in a healthy house. That's what we're talking about. If you want your neighbors to live in a healthy house, you've got to be willing to not only approve energy efficiency programs but approve and fund home repair projects. So that's that one element that I'll, I'll talk about. And then to transition into some of the energy programs that we're working on, that we're seeing, one of them I think that's exciting to see is the state energy office as part of its five-year weatherization plan that they got additional funding out of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They've set aside $2.25 million to kind of, it's called a collaborative agency. They're gonna have a group who can help go into communities and help provide like the actual infrastructure, the, you know, the, the agreements, creating meeting spaces, ability to share data across different organizations to connect housing repair entities and like the weatherization and energy entities. Cause right now they're not really talking to each other and the programs that are set up, the income qualifications, the requirements, they're messy and they don't fit well together. And it creates a really big challenge for a um, income qualified customer to navigate those spaces. So there, it's great to see that the state is investing in more collaboration. I also, one of this other programs like of greatest need is a payment assistance program. And there has been a, a pilot was approved in the latest rate case settlement, the same rate case where Duke Energy announced that rates are gonna, residential rates will increase by 17% over three years there's at least a pilot program to provide a $40, $42 bill payment credit to folks who are on federal energy assistance. And I know folks are like, you're just handing money away. But when people are getting disconnected, when it's like you're, the elderly and folks on fixed income, they need support. And an efficiency program can take you so far, but there simply are people that we can support and help them have a bill that they can pay. And if they can keep paying that bill consistently, then when they get disconnected, the rest of us ratepayers don't have to pay it for them. That's what this type of program can set up. The other big thing is that we haven't even talked about is multifamily energy efficiency. That is one area is a priority that the Justice Center has, and it's a tricky nut to crack. I mean, it's different types of buildings. You've got to bring in financing. There's, we've got to bring in expertise into this state to help to like jumpstart it. And I think 
some of the funding out of the like the what the way that the weatherization program and the Inflation Reduction Act create an opportunity for North Carolina to have a meaningful low-income multifamily energy efficiency program, and I look forward to working and building that because that is something. If if anyone out there is interested in working on it, come on, the window is opening, and this is the time to do it. And then the last thing I'll say to acknowledge that Duke Energy in the last two years has expanded their programs available at no cost to folks. They have increased the number of crews working on the neighborhood energy saver. This is an area that targets zip codes and how it goes door to door to offer energy upgrades. And they have a two-tiered program. So if you have a high energy intense house per square foot, if you're using a lot of energy per square foot, you could be eligible for more than like, you know, insulation, pipe, HVAC upgrades. Like you could be eligible for that. So that's really exciting to hear that Duke Energy has stepped forward with that. And they've also expanded their, their weatherization rebate programs to into the DEC service territory. It previously was only available in DEP, and this provides rebates to weatherization providers. So it's going to take a lot of different programs, and there's no one fixed solution to this issue. But those are some of the things that I see. I did also just want to, I think the question, I didn't, we kind of stepped over it, but like the, what's it going to take to implement a tariff on bill? Clearly, Upgrade to Save has put in great consumer protections. Duke Energy has also agreed to many of them, but a lot of this is dependent on implementation. And so I, I worry that things will be caught, like what happened kind of in, in Georgia, where there's just programs that get called this, but they lack the critical consumer protections or you've got contractors out there trying to sell it and they've got there's not there's weak verification on the estimated savings so people can you know there's an opportunity that people could get signed up for something that isn't going to help them save on their bills and could trap them in in these payments and that is a big concern and it's a, been a big concern from a lot of consumer advocates for a, a while and I think it's important to raise up programs that do it well, but acknowledge that there there is a risk that this could open up predatory practices, and and so I just want to I just want to raise that here um, as an important aspect in the implementation to, is to build the trust among these programs and have a a standard by which they are implemented. I I think it's really important to to cover the implementation angle, and especially too right. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to ensure that we're getting the word out about these programs and these offerings. As Marshall can probably attest with Upgrade to Save, there was a lot of time and effort spent in marketing these programs to the number owners of most need. And so I think it's going to take a lot of our organizations here to ensure that we're properly getting the word out about that program and ensure that it's being implemented properly to ensure the, the savings for the ratepayers. And at the same time, ensure that we're adhering to the actual intention of the established program. But before we potentially go into too much detail around implementation, I do want to make sure we get to, to Marshall with this last question, which is, you know, speaking of new and innovative programs, Roanoke Cooperative has been successfully running Upgrade to Save for a number of years now. And I know you all are always looking for the next opportunity to help benefit your member owners in Northeastern North Carolina. So what are some of the, the new innovative programs on your radar right now that are either in operation 
or that you're considering for the future. Yes, thank you uh, again, Matt. And I would like to ditto several things uh, that Clara just laid out as well as we are seeing a lot of those challenges in our ability to serve homes. And I'll talk about that some here, but nevertheless, at Roanoke Cooperative, yes, we're we're committed, number one, to pioneering initiatives that benefit our member owners at the end of the day, right here in Northeastern North Carolina. Uh, while Upgrade to Save has been a success, we're continuously exploring new avenues to enhance our services and support our community's needs. So with that, one of our major endeavors, and you spoke to it some earlier, Matt, is the imminent delivery of universal broadband access via fiber optic tech cable to all of our member homes. We, we have a wholly owned subsidiary company named Five who is helping us deliver that service. And by uh, completing this ambitious project within our footprint of member owners, by the end of 2025 is our goal. And we feel very confident that we'll be able to achieve that in bringing universal broadband access to all of the member owners of Ronald Cooperative. And so with that, we aim to bridge the digital divide and provide high-speed internet access to empower our community. Uh, continuing with our focus on smart energy solutions, yes, we're currently offering and, and expanding, exploring new uh, smart devices, of course, like water heater controls and Wi-Fi enabled uh, thermostats as we've been doing these innovative tools leverage internet technology to monitor and manage energy usage, power, empowering our member owners to actively reduce energy consumptions. And these initiatives not only help in cost savings of our member owners, but also assist in managing peak demand times for the utility again, thereby reducing overall electricity costs for the co-op. Our, our electric vehicle home charging program has gained traction among member owners. We have found ourselves collaborating with Tesla through public charging um, on the western end of, of our surge territory, and we're seeing some benefits there. We have also installed a public charger, the very first DC fast public charger in Gates County earlier this year, contributing to the, the growth of public charging infrastructure and promoting electric vehicle ad adoption in our region. And of course, our, our partnership with local school systems to introduce electric school buses underscores our commitment to sustainable transportation and reducing emissions. And so there's been funding um, that's already been granted to a couple of our school systems. We've been an active partner with them and we look forward to bringing those to fruition. We, we have forged partnerships with clean energy funding entities to address health and safety issues in income qualified locations, You know, paving the way for participation in the Upgrade to Save program, ensuring a more energy efficient and safe environment for our community. So we're able to address uh, some of the housing needs that we're seeing as when we first started Upgrade to Save, we acknowledged that about one out of every two homes that we visited was compromised due to health and safety concerns and we could not fully implement uh, a project there. So we're finding good partners to help us along the way to close those gaps and to be able to provide services to more of our member owners. And so on the, the grid side, of our organization. Of course, we're on the cusp of commissioning two solar plus battery storage systems. We're very excited about that. These systems will bolster our clean energy initiatives, aiding in peak management and enhance grid resilience. You know, moreover, we're implementing conservation voltage reduction techniques on our system to manage peak demand on specific circuits and have plans for standalone battery storage systems as well in the near future. So really, Matt, overall, in essence, our focus on a diversified portfolio 
of innovative programs spans from digital connectivity to smart energy solutions, electric vehicle infrastructure, clean energy initiatives, and grid resilience. And these initiatives collectively embody our commitment to sustainable practices and meeting the evolving needs of our member owners and the community at large. Roanoke Cooperative, longtime regional leader and will continue to be a regional leader that I think other uh, utilities will look to as a model to replicate of success uh, in being that leader for your member owners in the resiliency and reliability space, all really important endeavors. So with that being said, I'm going to wrap us all up because I'm so appreciative of your time here today and all of the great work that's being done in inclusive utility investment. We could honestly dedicate two and a half hours to talk about this topic because I feel like we we barely scratched the surface of, of all of the great work that's been done, which means we need to have you all back again for another episode as we dive in more deeply to the topic of inclusive utility investment and for an update on how Duke's tariff on bill program is being implemented here in North Carolina. So with that being said, I'm so gracious, gracious for your time and expertise that you bring to our listeners on the podcast. So thank you all for joining us here today. Honored, very honored, Matt. You bet. This was a great time. Thanks for having us and to, thanks for listening. I hope everyone takes care. Such a pleasure to be here and certainly inspiring to hear from both Claire, the Justice Center's work, so important, and Marshall Jerry at Roanoke Electric. Thank you, Matt. And you heard it here. This recently authorized tariffed on-bill program has the potential to be greatly transformational for so many North Carolinians who are struggling every day to make ends meet. If we're able to properly ensure implementation of this program, we can be a model of leadership for many other investor-owned utilities across the country. It's going to take dedication from many of the groups we heard about to ensure the structures are in place to get the word out about the program and make sure that we're seeing the necessary savings for ratepayers. I'm greatly appreciative of all the work our guests today have undertaken along with many others that weren't on, to be able to advance the conversation to the point where we now have a landmark program in place to be able to offer to a significant number of residents across the state. All right, and that's all for today's episode. Have ideas for future episodes or a burning clean energy question you want to see covered? Send me a note at mattable, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E, at energync.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider contributing or sponsoring today to help ensure we can continue to bring you great content like today's episode. Sponsorship opportunities and more can be found at energync.org forward slash the squeaky clean energy podcast. And episode 100 of the squeaky clean energy podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later.